the, the first thing I wanted to say was just a... Um, I don't often do um, sort of unsolicited marketing to this group, but uh, I read a volume over the weekend uh, that I read for the second time that I really enjoyed and really fit with um, what we're doing here, I thought, very well, which is uh, the Scottish writer George MacDonald uh, is The Curate's Awakening. Curate as a, you know, C-U-R-A-T-E. And uh, I read that years ago before we had a Bible study, and I really enjoyed it. He was, I believe, influenced by Swedenborg, and, and uh, it's definitely clear that in that volume there's no, there's no faith alone, you, you know, and it's not an instantaneous salvation, uh, and it's a very Bible-based. It's neat about a preacher who's just sort of going through the motions and then goes through this spiritual awakening kind of in the pulpit week after week, you know, and all. It's, it's just, it's well-written. It's, it's a good... Tale. There's a. Um, I think the original was written in a kind of Scottish dialect that's very hard to understand. But there's a kind of English quote-unquote editions from. I think it's the Bethany House in Minneapolis. I'm not sure, but anyway, I just thought I'd pass that on. And uh, our purpose tonight is to uh, talk about the purpose of the first coming. And uh, I want to go through some passages uh, about that. Um, and instead of writing a whole lot on the flip chart, as I often do, illegibly, even unto myself, uh, I've, I've got the information encapsulated in a handout, but I don't want to give the handout until later on. I want to go through the passages first, and then we can look at the handout and look at, look at the patterns and things that are in there. Uh, so I want to take you through some statements, and one of the things... I was really struck by and going through, I, in order to come up with this list, I wanted to tell you how I came up with this. Uh, one of the ways, part, part of what I do is I do a, now it's a, these days it's a half hour devotion in the morning of, I usually read a, a chapter from scripture and I'll read it twice and I note things and I write uh, cross references and that sort of thing in my Bible. Um, uh, but I also sometimes get seized by a desire to do a, concordance study and I was seized by it came out of that repentance Bible study recently uh, where Jesus said I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and I thought, oh that's interesting does he ever say anywhere else why he came I mean it's the Lord's coming you know that's what we're celebrating now is the is the Lord's coming does he say elsewhere why he came? Now, all that's involved in finding that out is looking at the three or four thousand times the word come is used in the New Testament in various different tenses and sorting out which ones are actually programmatic and which are just people moving in and out of uh, the, the scene or what have you. And what emerged from that was uh, 16 statements that we'll be looking at tonight in Jesus' own words, which is a lot, I think. That's not counting parallel passages. That's just 16 different statements, which is it seems like a lot. They're in all four Gospels, and that's what I want to study and reflect on with you tonight. And I was interested, as I looked at those, and, and I want to give you a heads up before we look at them, at, at seven of them, almost half of them, also said why he didn't come. In other words, you know, I came not to call the righteous. I mean, that's a statement about 
a non-purpose of his coming, or however you want to phrase it. And uh, I was very interested. There were seven of those. And then there were just four passages that I could find, two from Paul and two from the disciple John and his epistles, uh, that also you know, were statements not in Jesus' own mouth, but other people saying why he came. So that's the main uh, meal that's before us tonight, and then I've got a handout summarizing it, we can look at some patterns and stuff like that. So, shall we get busy? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I've just put these in biblical order, rather than sorting them in some other, you know, chronological or some other order. Um, Chapter 5, and we're looking at verse 17. A lot of these are very brief. I mean, it would be intensely interesting to look at all the context and so forth. But I just want to zero in on these statements because they, they kind of... Here, here this is uh, the... the um, uh, what do you call it? The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 5, verse 17, look at that. Think not that I am come to destroy the law... Or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That to me, with the word come in there, seems to me like it's... Doesn't that strike you as a kind of a statement of purpose or something? And here's how to hold what I'm doing here. I'm not... So he didn't make a secret of what he's... You know, he states it straight out there. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets... I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Next is Matthew 9.13, and I eliminated, as I say from this list, some parallel passages. Um, But 9.13 is slightly different wording than the one that we looked at last time when we were looking at repentance. But we'll start in verse 12. When Jesus, they were criticizing him for sitting down and eating with the publicans, the tax collectors. And the sinners, whoever the sinners are. I don't know who the sinners are, but there must have been some group that everybody knew. Oh, that's a sinner. What are you doing with that sinner? You know, uh, It's interesting to wonder who these people were. Are they people who don't follow the laws, like the uncleanness laws or the dietary laws? Or, you know, I don't know who exactly they are, but there's some group that you can just say, they're the sinners. And the Pharisees criticize him. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. What a beautiful statement. And then he adds a scripture that isn't in the parallel passages here. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's interesting. He just throws in a scripture in the midst of this quote, and then he continues with the the key part that I'm interested in tonight. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I I love the feeling of um, mission. You know, somebody challenges, what are you doing eating with those people? He, well, he almost did the same to Herod, for those of you who were in that Bible study a few weeks ago, where... Herod, you know, look out, Herod's going to kill you. And he said, go tell that fox, this is what I'm doing. He, he wasn't afraid to hand his plan to, you know, he'd show his, here's the playbook, this is what I'm planning to do. Go ahead and hand it out to, to the Pharisees. Tell them, look, 
This is what I'm here to do. I'm, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's one of those, both the ones we've looked at already had a kind of a not clause in it, didn't it? In the first part of, of 13, you said is it is a direct <clears throat> repeat of something that's said uh, elsewhere? Yes, and, and that first part, that, that uh, learn what this means, is a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, I always love it when the Lord quotes the Old Testament because I just get a little inkling of Him sitting down and reading those texts and how much they live for Him, you know, how important that is to Him. He's been reading this, and so He just... And, and He tells him, you know... Go and learn what this means. And who's he talking to? A bunch of Pharisees who, know, who feel very proud of how well they know that book. <laughs> I think you need to go back and look at Hosea 6, verse 6 again. <laughs> and just think about what that means for a minute before you challenge me again on sitting here with the tax collectors. You know. uh, it's just beautiful. And then turn, if you would, to uh, chapter 10 in Matthew. So these are coming pretty thick and fast in here, aren't they? Verses 34 to 35. Now this is kind of a bracing one. It's got a different kind of tone. And again, there's a knot in here. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword... For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Mm. Now that's really strange. Uh, I mean, first of all, isn't it true that when the shepherds appeared to the wise men, they said, peace on earth, goodwill toward... Like they said something about peace on earth, right? And he says, I came not to send peace on the earth, but a sword. I come to set a man at variance against his father. I'm hoping that in the context of all these, we'll start to see what the flavor of that is when we set it in the context of these 16 statements of why he came and why he didn't come. So let's just leave that a little bit open right now. And turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. Verse 11. You know, in these Bible studies, we haven't been very overtly about the holidays. We did have some angels break in last time and so forth. But, uh, But what else is really the meaning of the season than why the Lord... You know, I just think this is a great... A great thing to be looking at right right now, and I, I feel blessed that the Lord just said, "Hey, take a look at this." So, eighteen verse eleven, very short one. And here he doesn't use I; he uses the Son of Man. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. And then you see what happens immediately in the next verse. It's the hundred sheep, isn't it? The ninety-nine, the lost sheep, and he goes out to find the lost sheep. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Which seems a lot like that sinners to repentance, doesn't it? It seems reminiscent of, of that. 
But interestingly, it says the Son of Man, and the Son of Man, the way that I wouldn't know this, I don't think if the writings hadn't explained it, but uh, Son of Man uh, means the Lord, particularly in His role as the Word, in His fulfillment of the Word. There's something about His coming as the Word, is to save that which is lost. That, that was part of His function. And the last one in Matthew is chapter 20, verse 28. Another good one. Oh, he's been giving them a lecture. He's been giving them a lecture because somebody said they wanted to be the greatest. In fact, a mother came and tried to intervene for her sons and get a good situation in the kingdom, which is nice of her to do. And, but the other ten are moved with indignation against the brethren. And, and then Jesus gives them a lecture starting in verse 25 there about what it is to be above others and who will be great and all that kind of stuff. And in verse 28, you have another one of these statements. Even as the Son of Man, He didn't say I again, He says the Son of Man, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. It's very, very beautiful, Why? isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is beautiful, and it's the first time. Uh, you know, we're all. At least I was noticing with everything the first three or four that you've quoted. It's always that is come, which is. Isn't it awkward, the, the verb and, and the past? Yeah, yeah. Here it swings back to what we're more came. familiar with. Came, not to be ministered yeah. unto. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is come, I wonder whether that represents the perfect tense in Greek, mm-hmm. which is a past event that has a current effect. Mm-hmm. Like, <clears throat> not a tree fell, but a tree has fallen, meaning it's still right. there. Nobody right. you know, took care oh, of it yet. Yeah, so. that, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Matthew twenty twenty eight to minister, not to be ministered to. That's another not one, isn't it? Mm. Not to be ministered to. I love it. He's not only saying what he came to do, but he's saying what he didn't come to do. And uh, let's look at Mark one verse thirty eight, which is kind of an interesting one. So we're going, hey, Doug, into the next uh, the next gospel here to the right. I'm sorry, Mark. Mark, and that's chapter 1, verse 38. Now this one's a little... um, Somebody's upset. The um, <laughs> That might be uh, the child of one of the people on the phone. I was going to say, I thought you were that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then... Um, I love this very touching piece in Mark 1, verse 35 here. In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. It seems by the placement of it that that meditation that he did going out way before dawn 
and sitting in a solitary place by himself all night, it came clearer to him that he was... This is not just about taking care of these people here. We need to go around to the other towns. In another gospel, there's a situation like that, and when he comes out of that, he names the twelve disciples. You know, it seems like he was doing that kind of reflection, then he would get the marching orders, and he would he would go forward. You know, it came from the divine within him. Uh, but I love the fact that that's the same order that we have to go through. Sometimes we have to get alone by ourselves and figure out what the next step is like that. And then you'll notice that it says in the next verse, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. So he didn't say why he came forth. It just had something to do with going around to the different towns. But the position next to that next verse about preaching and casting out devils makes you think it had something to do with doing a wider circuit of preaching. You know, this is he came forth for this reason to uh, preach and to cast out devils. That's the only one in Mark. There are, uh, there are several others in Mark, but they're echoes of what we read in Matthew already, and I just took them in the biblical order. So let's go on to Luke. We're going to Luke chapter 9. Jonathan, yeah, question. yeah. Galilee, are the Galileans essentially Gentiles? Or are they sort of straight Samaritans? Or? They, as far as I know, there, there was a big... I mean, the way we think of the Bible, Jerusalem's very central in our thinking about it. Because it had been central. But at that time, it was kind of off the beaten path. It, it was the religious center. And so, you know, the, religiously it was centered there. But Capernaum was a great trade route from the east to the west. The great trade would come down Syria and come through Capernaum and go on that way and down into Egypt and so forth. And so it was a melting pot up there. Capernaum and these other places were on the trade route. And you would have Greeks, and you see it in the New Testament. There are Syrophoenicians and Greeks and people, you know, Roman centurion, and, you know, everybody's there. It's, uh, and so, in terms of the Jewish law, which I don't think until recently I was fully aware that you were not even allowed to talk to someone who was not of your religion without being unclean. And once you're unclean, there are days' worth of things that you have to do to get yourself clean again. So you couldn't just be hanging out on that highway and just talking to everybody. You know, the Greeks and the Syrophoenicians and everybody else. Uh, uh, so I think it was a place where, yes, there were, there were Jewish people, but I think they were sort of frowned upon from the Jerusalem angle that, you know, they're sort of mixing and mingling with the outsiders. And yet it's very interesting to me that that's where the Lord did a lot of His ministry was at that melting pot, you know, that intersection of all these different people coming and going up there. I don't know if that... Yeah, does, uh, so Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> mm. Oh, we're going to read a little background on this one. Hang on, we're going to turn to the Old Testament for just a moment. I didn't get anything out of the Old Testament. I took all these passages out of the New Testament. But I want you to turn back, if you would, to 2 Kings. We're going to read a little story to set this one up. Just because it's Bible study. (laughs) So 2 Kings chapter 1. Would somebody be willing to uh, 
read this rather dramatic story. It's 16 verses is what I'm looking for at the beginning of Second Book of Kings. All right, thank you, Carl. Second Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Good idea. <laughs> Go check with Beelzebub to get the latest good insight on your condition. And uh, this is a Samaritan, Ahaziah. I think he might be the king of Samaria or something like that. Do go on. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? (laughs) Which is a fun sort of trick. He's just, I mean, nobody told Elijah. The Lord told Elijah, right? Uh, The angel of the Lord told him what's going on. He's just sending out, you know, a delegation to go find out about this to Beelzebub, God of Ekron. Go on. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. Wait, so he's meant to say that to Ahaziah? That's what the angel of the Lord is telling him. To Elijah? Uh, Oh, no, no. Messengers of the king. I don't think he's encountered them yet. Has he encountered them? Oh yeah, no, they, they, he did bump into them. And he told them. I think it, it missed that part where he actually does it. But then the next verse, they turn back. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ephraim? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Close, 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 close. <laughs> then, he, then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? I love this. So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. By the way, uh, that hairiness is reminiscent of John the Baptist, isn't it? And that hairiness has to do with the literal sense of the word. It has to do with truths in the literal sense of the word. So anyway, do go on. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty men. Okay, so he sent to Elijah. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Okay. Then he sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. Mm. 
Again, he's not a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. Now, you've got to admire... <laughs> what's his name? Azariah for the persistence at this point, right? Ahaziah. Sorry. Yeah. But maybe he doesn't know what happened. No, he must know something because he keeps sending more. Yeah. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before God. What would you do? You know, <laughs> he's got a bad, bad assignment. <laughs> so, so he just goes in very humbly and comes in on his knees. Pleaded with him and said to him, "Man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties. But let my life now be precious in your sight." And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there was no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he goes ahead and dies in the next verse. And um, it's a rather strange little story because Elijah already told him that. I mean, it was the whole exercise of futility or something, <laughs> keeps sending these soldiers, boom, fire comes down, boom, there goes another 50. And then the angel just says, well, go with him. So, oh, all right. He just goes and tells him the same thing he already told him. If you want it in person, I'll tell you in person. You're not going to come down from that bed. You're going to die. Um but it has something to do with the, with the power of the Lord. All right, so that's background that we need to know in order to understand this next one. Okay, so take a look at 9, Luke 9, verses 55. Well, let's pick up at uh, 51. 51. <clears throat> and it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, this is Jesus, I love this phrase. I don't know what you have in your translation. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This, by the way, in in accordance with what Landon was saying, this was when he, okay, the shift is taking place from being up in the north to now it's all about Jerusalem. You know, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die there, and he just steadfastly set his face on going there. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans, same people we were just talking about, to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, now James and John mean love and good works, you know, charity and and good works, they're like the best. They're the best disciples. And what do they say? Lord, Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? These are the loved ones. These are the good the good works are ones are saying. When they wouldn't receive them in the Samaritans. Those accursed Samaritans are always a thorn in their side. And how how did he react? But he turned and rebuked them. And said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Isn't that a beautiful statement? It's kind of like what he says on the cross. They know not what they do. You don't know 
what kind of spirit you have right now. You don't know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man, he doesn't refer to himself as I here, he says the Son of Man again. Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. There again, you've got a not and what it is. Not to destroy lives. Do you want us to send down fire on them like Elijah did? No. That's not what I'm about. Not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Okay? Have a look at Luke 12, verse 49. This one in that context may surprise you. Luke 12, verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. That's odd. Isn't that odd? That's odd. Came to send fire on the earth, and what? How I wish it were already kindled. Hmm. And then you see just beyond there. That's suppose you that I'm come to give peace on the earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. And that's a parallel passage about the fathers and divided from the son and all that stuff. Uh, in verse 51 there, you've got another statement. Suppose ye that I'm come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. For the, and in verse 52, from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It is pretty thorough. Strange one, alright? We're going to look at all these in context. I'm not promising any kind of conclusion, but most of you know how this game is played. So, Luke 19. We have the story of Zacchaeus. Yes? Yes, please. Yes. Second thought is that the fire is the Lord's love. Yes. So when the first captain comes, and, he, and, and, and the first, uh, I cometh not to change the Bible, but to. Yes. And some, some others cometh. So the, the Samaritans who were, some, you know, compassed with the hells, they come. And they get this fire of love and they change. Well, but that doesn't sit well with the other spirits. So then five, yeah. the fifty come and, and, and the Lord, you know, uh, puts this loved one in and they change. And that doesn't sit well with the others, you know. So when you're last quote, I come to set fire on the one. I come to set my love and, and just change something to get the hell that you used. Yeah, I wish it were already kindled. I think it's a clue there because it's not a negative fire. It's easy to take that fire in a very negative sense. It's interesting that of the three, the one who's humble doesn't get burned up. But uh, And it makes me think of all those sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, and all those burnt offerings were about love transforming something external into something spiritual. You know, and then Jehovah would smell a sweet aroma and everything from that. 
same kind of thing. Uh, so from the outside, it's just like the the mountain Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. They saw fire up there and they were terrified of it. Moses went up there and, and spent weeks up there and he was fine. Uh, but our lower selves are terrified of that fire. But I think you're right. It is it is love. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like your reading of that. That's awesome. Um, here in um, 19 we have Zacchaeus. You remember this was a short person and uh, he got up into the uh, tree, the sycamore tree, to see Jesus when he went by. And uh, Jesus looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, this is verse 5, Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, same complaint they had before, that he was gone to be a guest with a man that's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. Abraham also means that love. For the Son of Man, and here's the statement that we're interested in, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Is a lot like another one we had already about to save the lost, but this one adds the element of to seek. To seek and to save that which was lost. And how this is not a parallel passage to that other one is it wasn't in the story of Zacchaeus. Luke is the only gospel that has the story of Zacchaeus in it. <clears throat> and uh, then turn to John. There's a number of these in John. You are probably aware, aren't you, friends, that there are these synoptic Gospels that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all kind of dependent on each other. The way I would put it is that Matthew is dependent on Mark and Luke is dependent on Mark, but Matthew and Luke are kind of independent. But they're called synoptic because they see through the same lens kind of thing. And and uh, so often you get the same story in all three of those. And there's only a few stories that are in Matthew but not in Mark and a few in Luke that are not in Mark, you know, and, and a few in that are not in each other. But a lot of stories, you've got three versions of them. But John is very independent. Very, very different. Very different. And uh, But it's fun to see that these kind of statements are present in all four Gospels. Uh, John 6, verses 38 to 40. 6, verses 38 to 40. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. It's kind of reminiscent a little bit of that not to be ministered to, you know, but to minister to other. Didn't come to do his own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is, now he specified, okay, well, what is that will? That's good. But what is that will? This is, and this is a little cryptic, a little apocalyptic maybe. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So to me, those, those three verses go together. Uh, that he came to do the Father's will, and then he states what that will is twice. That he raised them up at the last day. 
some of you may have heard me say before, and, and I'm really longing for a day when we can uh, look at this. Right now we're doing the nature and purpose of the first coming. And we've been on that for a number of weeks. And at some point we'll get into the nature and purpose of the second coming. And uh, the second coming, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Uh, I think you'll see with me in Scripture that the second coming, the language about it is identical with the language about our death, and our death is identical with the second coming. And so this last day, to me, is like our last day. You know, that applies to everyone. It's a, it's a, the Lord will raise us up at, the, at our last day. People have mistakenly taken this in a kind of excessively literal way and thought that there will be one day when Jesus appears in the physical clouds and He comes and everybody's raised up on that day. But Scripture shows, and I look forward to showing this someday, that we're resurrected immediately after we die. You know, I mean, there's lots of indications of this in Scripture. There's no waiting, so you don't you don't hang around, and you know that last day is not going to be thousands of years from now or something. Doesn't some of those religions refer to that as the rapture, and they believe that literally? Absolutely. We'll be getting into the rapture when we deal with the second coming. It's going to be fun. Thank you. It's going to be fun. The rapture is great fun. All right. The uh, it just uh, yes. Forty one goes ahead with one more reference to uh, I am the bread which came came down from heaven. Yeah. That's right. He didn't say why, but he is the bread that came down from heaven. That's right. It's got it got the Jews murmuring. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I love all the exchanges in here. Where just, we've, we've heard some grumbling in several of these, haven't we? They grumble, grumble. And in the face of all this grumble, grumble, he says, here's why I came. Uh, John 9.39. All right, we'll turn over to chapter 9. And this is the end of a whole chapter about the man who was born blind. Jesus heals him of his blindness. The healing takes a minute. The aftermath is days of warfare. <laughs> with people who are upset about this. And there's an inquiry. And they talk to the person who was born blind. And then they investigate the parents. And the parents send them back to the person. And the, you know, it's this huge kerfuffle. Because this person was, you know. And... Um, and then Jesus catches up with the person himself and talks to him about the Son of God and so forth. And uh, and then it ends with the blind person worshiping the Lord. And then in verse 39... What chapter? Of John chapter 9. 9. For judgment... An interesting one. For judgment I am come into this world. There's I am come that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Mm. So in the context of the blind man and the Pharisees, who do you think was the one who could not see, who became able to see? And who do you think he's referring to as who can see who shall be made blind by the Lord's coming? And you see down in verse 41, he makes it very... They ask him point blank. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? 
Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. So for judgment I'm coming to this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. Mm, that's a reverse. It's reminiscent of all those ones about the the low, you know, the proud, proud shall be brought low and the humble shall be exalted and this reversal that the Lord is coming to do. And He calls it a judgment here. It's interesting that, that this miracle would be a judgment on the Pharisees, isn't it? That's the way that He presents it. They've kind of failed the the test or something. You but know. you could say he's actually saving them also by they're guilty because they can see. So if they can no longer see, they're less guilty. Yeah. There's a lot in what Swedenborg says about that. I've been reading some of that lately about profanation and the protection. Because profanation is a really bad thing that you don't want to have happen. And he, he is protecting them by making them unable to... Bl- it sounds cruel here to blind people who can see. But it is actually part of the mercy. Um, John 10 might even be on the same page for you. John 10, verse 10. And this is where he's been talking about himself as the door of the sheep. And then he says the thief... He tells you why the thief comes. That's good. It's even better than telling you why he... Something that was not a purpose of his coming. He tells you why the thief came. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's another one of these statements, isn't it? Why he came. That they may have life and have it more abundantly. All right. We're coming down the home stretch here, but we've got a few more to go. They being the sheep. They being the sheep. That's right. The sheep. So the sheep will have more abundant life. 10 verse 10. Now we're turning to chapter 12, and there are actually three in this one chapter. John chapter 12. First one is in verse 27. Well, we'll back up a little bit. It's a very powerful statement. This is when he's um, about to go into the crucifixion. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Another little hint that the crucifixion was about glorification and not about redemption. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify Thy name. And there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And that's a great statement, because you could be mistaken 
into thinking that the glorification was an almost instantaneous thing at the moment of death. But that's not what the voice from heaven said. I have, you know, there's already been a lot of glorification to get you to the point where you're able to do all these miracles and teach and so forth. And I will glorify it again. Why aren't the words of God in red? In the red letter edition? Yeah, that's bizarre, isn't it? I guess it's just a voice from heaven, so they, since they don't know, they're hedging. It's a tough call. It's a, it's a editorial call. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is an interesting one. He doesn't specify what the cause is exactly. But he says, for this cause came I unto this hour. And to my mind, by context, it has to be about glorification. You know, That's why I came to this hour. For this cause I came into this hour. To be, to be glorified. And then this voice comes and says that. And then if you look at... Yeah, I'm go sorry, ahead. Can we back up to 25? Sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, he that hateth his life in this world, is, is that then uh, rejection of, uh, of the ugly parts of self in the repentance process? I, personally, I take it very much the same way as the bear your cross and even mm-hmm. to bear your cross daily. Mm-hmm. It's not the obvious sort of life-giving thing that you would think your life would be about to take on that cross. And I think when he says, hate your life in this world, you know, you have to set that against something like Hebrews 12, verse 2, that says that for joy he endured the cross. You know, that Jesus... Hmm. It's not that he didn't have a joyful... You know, it's not that you're supposed to feel glum and... And hate your life, but but I think the life it's talking about is that life of evil mm-hmm. that that's in in your heart, mm-hmm. uh, your life in that's your life in this world. Mm-hmm. And if you hate, you come to the point where you hate that, then you get to keep your life, your spiritual life, into life eternal. Into spiritual sin. Yeah. Is it Yeah. Yeah. If you get it so that you don't want, you won't prioritize uh, momentary gains for for that stuff, then that's hating the life in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it makes me think of the um, uh, the more. Not that I'm any example of anything, but the more I go along in my spiritual life, the more dissatisfied and unhappy I get with my outer self. I mean, I see more and more how this thing is just shot through with all kinds of... I would, I would have to use asterisks and at symbols to express it, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, there's just a lot of bad stuff in that old self. You know, I re- you, you really get tired. <laughs> I really get tired. Uh, that evil that's in there, hereditary evil... 
And if we go to verse uh, 46 in that same chapter, we have another one. Am I wrong? There we go, 46. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. That, that, that clause seemed like sort of a purpose. You know, why has he come? He's come a light in the world. Why did he come as a light in the world? That whosoever believes on him should not abide in darkness. And then there's another one in the following verse. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. And here's another one of those not statements. I think it's the only one we're having in... No, no, no. There was another one in John. Uh, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And there are a few different places where Jesus says, I, you know, I judge no one. Powerful. Um, and the last one in John, this is the last one in the Word's own. So, so the Lord says a lot, doesn't He? He says a lot about why He came. John chapter 18, verse 37. In a conversation with Pilate, He doesn't hold His tongue. He, he tells Pilate why He came. Uh, Pilate uh, asked him in verse 33, 18 verse 33 in John, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it to thee, of me? And Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? So, he, he says, well, your nation delivered you over here. So Jesus wants to set him straight on that. My kingdom is not of this world. A very important statement. A statement we will get back to when we talk about the rapture. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. We are ending with a bang here. Aren't we? Two ways of saying it. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And then he went out and told them, I find in him no fault at all. But powerful again, that he's, here's my life's mission. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing on the planet. I just love that sense. He's got 16, and they're different answers. They're interesting answers, but he's got the 16 answers. And uh, we just have a few left to go here in other people's voices. Okay, so turn if you would. Now we're going back into the epistles to Galatians. Comes after the Romans and the Corinthians. Galatians chapter 4.
verses 4 and 5. And, by the way, well, I'll read it first and then we'll talk about it. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Very clear statement of why Jesus... I'm saying it's clearly about that. Uh, it, it's a problematic statement in some other respects, but I mean it's, a, it's, a, it's made my list because it definitely says this is why this happened. Swedenborg refers to this a number of times. Uh, he doesn't always cite this verse, but uh, this is a, a passage that he uses a lot because it says that the Lord came into the world when the fullness of time was come. There was something that had to you know, ripen and get to a certain point, and then he came into the world. So it's kind of a cool statement that way. Uh, but the way it's using the word law has caused a lot of um, misunderstanding, you know, because people think it means the Ten Commandments or something, that he was made under the law, but he came to redeem them that were under the law. You could almost read it as if, oh, well, he's going to save them from that law, that they don't have to obey the law anymore. But it's very clear from context, we don't have time to go into it now, that what Paul is talking about is the Mosaic law of all those laws about the uncleanness, circumcision, dietary laws. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all those, the grapes and the gleanings and what you have to do in these different circumstances. And uh, it means, in effect, to redeem the Jews. Those were the ones that were under the law. Brother Miller has been uh, saying lately an interesting thing that he says there's a difference between being under the law and having the law in you. And I like that. I like that distinction. Uh, and look if you would, keep turning to the right through the epistles and we'll get to First Timothy. comes after the Thessalonians. First Timothy, and these are pretty small epistles so they're kind of hard to find. Chapter 1. Verse 15, which is a very succinct one. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's Paul's, Paul's statement there. Kara, uh, can you turn that computer there for a second and just hit click on answer up there? I think they lost the connection or something on their Skype. Oops. There you go. And then you may have to click on video too up there. Oh, yeah. Once they answer. Um, okay, so those are two from Paul. To redeem those who are under the law and to save sinners, of whom Paul is the chief. By the way... Does that mean that when Jesus came into the world, He took away the sins? How could Paul, after Jesus' resurrection, refer to Himself as a sinner? As a chief sinner? If Jesus took away sins by some magical act of fiat or something. That's not what happened. And look at 1 John. So the epistles of John are all the way getting toward the revelation at the back of the book. There are three epistles of John, right before Jude and then Revelation. And I'm looking at the first one, 
First Epistle of John has two such statements in it. Oh, connection lost again. Yeah, we must be having trouble there. Uh, first John, first epistle of John, not the Gospel of John, but the first epistle, chapter 3, verse 8. This is an interesting one. So this is the Apostle John, first John 3, verse 8. Here's another one. Ask yourself whether sin was done away with by Jesus' crucifixion. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then he goes on, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And so on. Goes on from there. So that's a very clear purpose statement, isn't it? This is in the words of the Apostle John. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. And yet, it's very clear from the immediate context there and from a host of other things that that doesn't mean... I mean, it's so baldly obvious it's hardly bare saying that that didn't nuke evil out of existence. You know, like the works of the devil didn't cease at that moment and hell was out of business and had to find something else to do for a living. Uh, Evil's alive and well. Sin is alive and well. Uh, but, what's that? I know, I know. It's a blessing. The Lord uses it. And a look at 1 John 5, verse 20. This is one of Swedenborg's favorite passages from the epistles. And I never had looked at this one as a one about the purpose of the Lord's coming. And I may not be reading it right, but this is the way it came across to me. Oh, look at verse 18. I can't help but mention on that, that. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. There's two ways to read that. Either that means you're born of God and then you, you, know, you can't sin, or it means that not sinning is how you're born of God. You know. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. You have to keep yourself. It's something you have to do. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come, there's that word, and hath given us an understanding, and then it expresses the purpose of that understanding, that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now you may not agree that that belongs in a list of purpose things. But to me, it said, "The Son of Man is come, and hath, the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true." In other words, it makes it sound as though that was the purpose of His coming: give us an understanding, so that we may know His Son Jesus Christ, and this is the true God and eternal life. Twenty-one is an interesting little comment there. Yeah. Keep yourselves from idols. Yeah, I was sober. just translating something the other day where Swedenborg was commenting on that. Let me. Uh, Pass out these uh, handouts, if you can take one and pass the rest along, that summarizes what we've just seen. This Bible study usually goes to 9 o'clock. We're usually very prompt, aren't we? We usually finish promptly. So we're coming down the home stretch. You've been very patient. <clears throat> Uh, 
This is just my, you know, these aren't the exact words, but this is sort of an outline of what we just talked about. One point that I want to make about this is look down at Paul's Galatians 4 to redeem those who are under the law and compare that with the first one from Jesus. I came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. There's an awful lot of infernal Christianity that says that that law is done away with. Well, that's Christianity from hell. And there are millions of Christians in hell who practice that, but it doesn't make it right. And it's quite clear there. That's not talking about... It's beautiful. The first one from Paul matches the first one from Jesus... And Jesus, I I don't know how you get around that. I didn't come to destroy the law. It's not what I'm doing here. Yes? Help me with the different Gospels. Historically, um, John comes later? Yes. The thought is that Mark is actually the first. Okay, so John comes later. John is late. I don't honestly know when. I think it was very early that it was accepted. Maybe even like 150 A.D. or something like that. I think some the people vary on the date, but I think some people feel it was written around 90 A.D. and that it was accepted, or at least the church fathers were using it and it was read in worship in, in the and second century. Was the, the Reformation and, and, uh, and uh, Martin Luther um, kind of questioning. Well, James was the one that they questioned. Okay, it was James. The epistle of James, they wanted to get rid of. I, I, I guess my simple thinking is, it seems to me that the earlier Gospels are talking about uh, the Lord coming to fulfill the Lord and to teach the Lord. And as we go into John, it's more of an inclination that the Lord, that Jesus came to be the Son of God so that we can use Jesus through Jesus we can be saved and whatever, which was something that uh, the Reformation and and more modern thinking, not modern, but later later thinking um, is kind of questioning. And and that's what those are my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, right. John is amazing for both having very much a sense of the oneness of Jesus and the Father and also very much of a sense of the two-ness of Jesus and the Father. It's a it's a striking gospel that way and very different than the... So, so to talk yeah. to John face to face, Jesus came as the Son of God so through Him you can find salvation. That's right. right. Okay. That's but right. To talk to uh, Matthew or somebody before John uh, that, that Jesus came as God to teach God's Word. Yeah, yeah. And they're... they're um, I think you. I, I love the fact that there are the four Gospels because I don't think you get a fully dimensional picture until you you look through all of them. But they certainly give you a different slant on it. A different slant. And the, the, one of the main things that John gives you is the sense that there was a son of 
God from eternity. You know, that that's where the Athanasian Creed and the... Uh, because he was around from creation, he came down from heaven, he was already up there, he participated in creation, then he came down. And you don't get that same sense from the earlier Gospels, especially from Mark. It all, Mark almost sounds like he was human, and then at the moment of baptism, something came on him, you know, and just seized him and, and took him from there. Uh, in the literal sense, they're, they're quite different in what they do. Uh, if I can bring your attention to the second one of Paul's, to save sinners, I like the way it goes with the second one up above. How do you save sinners? You call them to repentance. Right? That was the method. So that one goes nicely. I'm interested that the word save is used in four of these in the two column. To save the lost, to save human lives, to seek and save the lost, and to save the world. That's the most frequently occurring word in there, I think. And I think some of the more bizarre ones can be read in the context of repentance. And you, I've been hammering on this a lot lately. Uh, how you fulfill the law and the prophets as you go through repentance. That's what they were talking about. I think when he talks about not sending peace on the earth, he's talking in correspondence. That's our outer self. That's the church in ourselves, like that, that father's the old man, Stephen calls him the old man in Ephesians and so forth, that, that old man is corrupt according to deceitful lusts and everything, and there's the new man. And so the father and the son are going to be divided. There's going to be warfare, as Romans 7 says there will be, you know, warring in my members, that old man and, the new, and so forth, inner self and the outer self, warring. Uh, so I think that division within the families is talking about within the individual and it certainly was true in the church, too. He, he couldn't do anything without, as we saw just in those statements. There's a lot of warfare going on. And so I think that's that sword, and it's the sword of truth, but it divides. It says, you're here and you're there, and it does split these these connections, you know, that want to just be generation after generation of evil or something. No, we're going to split that father from that child and, you know, separate that. And uh, I agree with what... Uh, Ken said, still trying to get your name right. The uh, sending fire on on the earth is about that love coming, preaching and casting out devils has to do with that. Um, the blind seeing and the seeing becoming blind. Uh, it's just a powerful list, isn't it? Believers would not abide in darkness, save the world. Another thing I wanted to say about this was that as I look at the not list, I was absolutely fascinated by this not list. And I feel like in some overt ways, there are churches, there's certainly what I've been referring to lately as infernal Christianity, that espou- these are sort of a mission statement of a kind of infernal Christianity. <laughs> you know? um, that the Ten Commandments are done away with. There's certainly the idea out there somewhere that you pay attention to the New Testament, don't bother with the Old Testament. That's the law. We're under grace. We don't have to bother with that. So the prophets, all that Old Testament stuff, law and the prophets, get rid of that stuff. Very striking that Jesus would say, that is not what I'm about. You know, just point blank. Alan. Well, I think that's a good point. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Well, along those lines, and, and really more on this, the first one you pointed out, the Galatians and the Matthew, I've been reading the Paul's epistles, and I'm struck at how you could read the Gospels as a correction of Paul. Mm. That the, the epistles are all first. You know, they're first in time. Gospel. That's right. They, co- they come later in the book, but they're first in time. Right. So yeah, they were the earliest things. What's interesting to me is just think about what's it like to be alive at that time when you're trying to figure out the Jesus and God. I mean, it's just so confusing, so difficult. You know, and so there's these various attempts to try to make sense of it. And Paul's making an attempt to make sense of it. And I think he gives parts of it right and parts of it not so right. And I think the Gospels have it more right. Uh, and, and that it's interesting to see this, that first statement of why did I come here in Galatians and why did I come here in Matthew is actually the opposite. So it's sort of, well, <laughs> no, forget about that do away with the law thing. I'm actually here to fulfill the law. So I'm yeah. reading it in the light. Oh, that's of, interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. You know, so the Gospel writers, I think, are well aware of Paul's preaching, and, yeah, and they're responding to that. And you I can you can see in, um, and I, I know I, I listened to some tapes on the teaching company has tapes on the New Testament, and they talked about the difference between Paul and, and the Gospels, and and uh, I see them more in alignment than the, I mean the more I read in the epistles, I see that there are, there's a lot of similarity. I can't tell what's confusion and what's Paul talking in correspondences and so forth. It's difficult to say. But I'm very interested in that statement you may have heard me cite before from Second Peter, where he says that in Paul are many difficult sayings that people twist to their own destruction. And, and uh, so there was an awareness in Peter that what Paul said was difficult. Um, and uh, this scholar said that it's not certain that Paul read a word of any of the Gospels, you know, or was ever exposed to that, or was even exposed to the stories about. He has a couple of quotes from Jesus, but I think they're mainly things that he received in his own vision of Jesus, and not, you know, wasn't even necessarily aware of. Like, uh, anyway, just some, there's some really basic stuff that Paul Isn't, doesn't seem aware of. Paul had been murdered in Rome prior to the writing of the first Gospel. Yeah, yeah. I do think the timing is is so, but there was the, there's this idea that there was this cue that was an Aboriginal document that led to Mark and so forth, and he didn't seem to be aware of any of those sayings, or he doesn't quote Jesus a lot, and uh, you know, uh, so it's a very early uh, go, and yet in interesting ways, as some of you have heard me say before, Paul has interesting parallels to Swedenborg in terms of they both were lifted up the third heaven, they both. Uh, heard ineffable things and they both came back and tried to write them down and were writing in correspondences and so forth and, uh, and doctrinal things to try to launch a church uh, you know and so that business of Paul being first is interesting because you almost sort of had to have that doctrine first before you got the more correspondential document that's difficult to read in, in its own way uh, but clearer about the message like Matthew 25 about the goats and the sheep. You know, you have to live this and so forth. Now, that's very interesting. I think it's possible that uh, there are churches, uh, we may be one of them, that exists to call the righteous or that doesn't have much interest in sinners. And it's interesting for Jesus, you know, I'm going to think of a whole bunch of sinners who want to join the church. We might not be that interested. <laughs> 
because we'd rather have the righteous. You know? <laughs> so we're a little out, possibly out of alignment, and maybe some other churches are too, with, with Jesus' uh, effort there to... Uh, and very powerful. I came not to call the righteous. Uh, the, there are certainly lots of causes, and now I'm just being silly, but uh, causes that about peace on earth or family values or getting people together. And here's Jesus saying, I came not to send peace, and I'm going to wreck families. You know, um, <laughs> It's just powerful. I, I was amazed to look down this list. Uh, there are certainly people who felt, at, at least they didn't feel that it was, you know, I mean, very prominent Christians, at least one prominent Christian spokesperson said after 9-11 that it happened because of all the homosexuality in New York and that that's why the lives were destroyed. And, you know, it doesn't seem to be in alignment with Jesus' saying about, I came not to destroy life. You know, that's not... He's not about killing people. You know, that's not what he's about. He's about saving lives. Uh, you know about the dead church that's been based uh, somewhere in the south where they go to funerals and they have the signs. Have you heard about it that say, thank God for dead soldiers? Um, it's, it's, uh, was that down in Florida or somewhere? Well, but, but they, yeah, they, they yeah. all over. Um, but they, yeah. they hold, they go to funerals of soldiers killed in Iraq because they think that God is letting people be killed in Iraq because we have homosexuals in the United States. Um, and so they 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 go and they yeah. have military funerals with these signs that say God hates fags and thank God for dead soldiers. It seems just out of alignment with the gospel, doesn't it? Check it on the news. I mean, it's pretty, pretty well done. Yeah. It does seem... I mean, uh, as you'll hear me say if you stick around for the rapture lecture someday, uh, I don't think the physical world is going to be destroyed, but I do think we're at something like an end of times. I mean, I think that there's a, there's a form of so-called Christianity out there that is very distressing and, and reprehensible and almost the opposite of... You know, just about 180 from 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 what I think the Lord is really I saying. Think it's the polar opposite. I mean, there's there's nothing. For yeah. It's taking it's about God being the the message of God is, is universal love and uh, you know treating everyone as valuable. And yeah. They're taking it and making the, the God and religion thing as being about there's one group that's in and one group that's out, and God is this sort of pseudo military force that will punish her and destroy yeah. everyone who's in Group B and save everyone who's in group A, which is just love of self magnified. Right. And here's a statement to the effect that I came not to judge the world, but to save it. You see your list here, man, is that definitely in mission statements, you know? And why it's so hard to, you know, be a Christian church, or even a Christian church, because that's what people think of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know it really. I've, I've at times gotten very angry about it because it does give Christianity a horrible name and makes the task that lies before us all extremely challenging. Because a lot of people are justified. Practically everybody in the entire continent of Europe is just sick to the point of vomiting over how bad this Christianity can can be. You know, and I can't blame them. You know, I think it is, but but. I'm hoping that the whole... I, who knows how the Lord is going to do it? But it, it's a, it just seems sad to have the Bible and really valuable things rejected along with that because of it's been brought into a bad uh, sphere. And you also look at these two of not to be ministered to. Uh, there are certainly... I don't know. I mean, we've all got a lower self, so we know exactly what our lower self is like. It wants to be ministered to. 
you know. And there are certainly people who are just self-will run riot or ego run riot who are pastors or leaders in, in churches and whatever. And it's all about being ministered to. And it's not a bit about ministering or service and uh, not to do my own will. You know, there's a lot of self-will. So it, it, that's why I say it's kind of a sort of mission statement. You just take the knot off and you've got a great little mission statement for a kind of infernal... Uh, Christianity just perfectly upside down from from where where it needs to be. Um, another little point I wanted to just throw in here was it was a a fun. Um, I've been reading the proof lately. The proof of uh, true, true Christianity, Volume Two, uh, is now on my desk, and I'm reading through the chapters. It's great fun, and. Um, uh, I think it's in number five seventy. It's right around there. And it's repeated in other places in the writings that Swedenborg has the experience that the it comes from of course it comes from Apocalypse Revealed I think it's number five thirty one or something like that um, where Swedenborg actually has the experience of the two witnesses uh, where they lie as if dead in the streets of, of Jerusalem and and are jeered at and people give each other gifts and they're so happy about them being dead and then after three and a half days they rise up and they're more powerful than ever. And uh, and while Swedenborg's explaining that chapter, he has that very experience. He collapses. He says he got sick. It's a very interesting statement. He got sick in his spirit and then in his body. His body caught the sickness from his own spirit. Interesting to go that way around. And he lay as if dead. He was in severe pain and expected the end. For three and a half days, he's lying there in the spiritual world and people were mocking him. And they asked the church authorities in the spiritual world, what should we do with him? Should we bury him? No, let him lie there and be looked at. And people would come around and mock him while he's lying there, just can't move. And and what they said about him was very interesting. You know what they accused him of? They called him a preacher. Now in this world, he had a bad stammer. You know, He couldn't do public speaking. He had a terrible stammer. When he'd get nervous, he just couldn't spit the words out. That's why I think the Lord had everything funnel into the writing. He's not going to be an evangelist on a stump. Can't do the stump thing, you know? It's got to go into the books, into the books, into the books. So, and, uh, so, but in the spiritual world, he's called a preacher. And what do they say that he preaches? Why are they so angry with him? He preaches two things. Repentance and the man Christ alone. That's what they accuse him of. This preacher of repentance and the man Christ alone. And they're just incensed about this. This preaching that he's doing up there. Now, I love... you know some, it's, we, we, In another Bible study, we saw how the evil spirits were very clear about how Jesus was. The people in the world had no clue, but the evil spirits are crystal clear about who he is, the power he has, the whole deal. They know the mission. They know they're in trouble. The whole deal. They're wonderful. And um, here again, you get this wonderful clarity from the evil spirits sort of mirroring of what he's saying. They're not quite right about how they hold it, and they're absolutely incensed. But I don't know of a clearer, you know, if you had to boil 30 volumes down and get just a couple of words down in the bottom of the pan at the end of 40 days and nights of uh, boiling off the excess. Uh, isn't that interesting? It's repentance and Jesus. That's what, that's what he was preaching in the spiritual world. That's why they hated him. You know? 
It's, it's, uh, that's what it's all about. When I look at this list, I, I can't demonstrate it exactly, but you see His glorification in there. Uh, it's about the Lord, and it's about repentance. That, that's his, I think you can relate all those things. I can't do it for you. I won't do the pyrotechnics or something. I, I, we, we can all look at it together in our own hearts. But, but I think it's all got to do with Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. That's the essence. That's the essence of the message. So, I find you can use repentance as a kind of shibboleth. Because lots of people believe in God. Lots of people believe in spirits or some spiritual world or something that we can't see or unseen, whatever. Or, you know, and lots of people believe in lots of things. But repentance makes those evil spirits sick. They, they have no problem with a lot of other stuff. But repentance and Jesus, oh, you know, as the one only God. They don't mind him being the Son of God. They don't mind him being in the Pantheon up there with Buddha and the other enlightened masses or whatever. But, as the one only God of heaven and earth, and you got to repent, that is not infernal Christianity. That is heavenly Christianity. And that's what we celebrate this time of year. Can you join me? Oh, do you have a point? Please. Yes. Um, I'm just going to say the prayer. Here. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, this came up Jennifer and I had this conversation a couple days ago, um, Matthew 19, and uh, kind of something that gets taken out of context yeah. pretty regularly. Um, 26. Matthew that, 19, 26? Yes. Where they shorten it and say, with God all things are possible. Yeah. So it always gets shortened. Yes. So if I was to say, Jonathan, wouldn't you really rather have been a professional hockey player? And you could say, well, you know, to tell you the truth, in another year I'm, I'm going to start training. I'm going to be a professional hockey player. But I don't think you're going to make it. You know, right. <laughs> as a, so, but if you read, the, and I, I was waiting to pose this, and then it, I, of course, read ba- backed up a little bit, and it, it, it really doesn't have anything to do with that grand promise of, you know, it, it, it does go back to, it is possible. For, it, it goes back to repentance in yeah, that the kingdom I of have heaven, it within yeah. me to work with the Lord to repent. Yeah. But I don't have it in me to, uh, you know, next year at this time have a Phillies uniform on. Right. Yeah, what are... <laughs> but it always, gets, those, it always gets shortened to that little thing. And the word things is interesting in that, you know, like... All, all things. things. What yeah. are those things yeah. that are all things? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I know. There's a. There's a. Um, there's some fantastic material in the writings on. Um, so powerful about that idea of omnipotence. I've been thinking a lot about that lately. How the Lord works within His order. He is His order, mm-hmm. and He works within that order. And to go against it would be to go against Himself. Mm-hmm. So all things. You might put in brackets, you know, all good things or all orderly things or all something, you know, are possible. Not anything like a moose could fly out of my head right now, you know. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. There's a, there's a <laughs> reindeer, probably a reindeer this time of year, yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful bit in, in, the, in True Christianity where Swedenborg says that... Uh, 
you know, why didn't why didn't Jesus, you know, if if God can do all things, why why wasn't Jesus born as an adult? Or why wasn't wasn't he a two year old uh, speaking wisdom? Why did you know start mm-hmm. speaking at the age of two all this wisdom or something? Yeah. And uh, uh, and all these nonsensical things, mm-hmm. not realizing that there's an order, and that everything happens within that order. So all things, you know, with God, all things are possible. All things within that order. I think. Yeah. All things are possible, and it's in the context of regeneration. It's great yeah. to say, well, "Let's take that out of there. Take the kingdom of heaven out of the equation. This is about me and my own needs being right. met, or something." You know, yeah. uh, that, that's you know, or dreams and fantasies. Yeah. Anything good. Anything good. Thank you, you, friends. Let's close with a prayer. Wish we could hold hands with you on the phone there, friends. Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts and minds to You. We thank You, Lord, for Your message for so many times saying what You came for, what You were here to do, We thank You for Your presence with us, Lord, guiding us, Your Word doing a work, not leaving us void, but working with us to take us through our own process of repentance. Help us to see, Lord, the next thing that we need to tackle that stands as an obstacle to You. We thank You for Your infinite mercy and patience with us, Lord. We hope to be with You in Your kingdom now and forever. Our Father, who art in heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, friends. Thank and we you, will Jonathan. be meeting every Wednesday night through the through the um, through the holidays. Here, same bat time, same bat place. And um, feel free to bring a friend. And you're welcome to come and go if you please. Thanks for joining us. Lovely. Night. That's great. The, uh...
Oh, is it? Uh, hey, thanks so much for being the doorman. Yeah, hey, Gary, thanks. You're the best. I mentioned about the Trinity, and uh, I think that there's. <laughs> I, I felt that in some gospel services, you see these this great music and this praise, and everybody's jumping around. But there's a little confusion about who we're celebrating. What we do. You know, and if you don't know also, that, like, you, you know, don't have it. Is, is that because you just go to the cross? Is, is it God that, the Father? Do, right, right, right. It's God the Father, and then Jesus is over here who well, helped us. It's, it's, it's kind of like getting a, a domino effect. So then other falsehoods come. What do they do? Oh, but the oh, big oh, thing is, if you go to there, things will be re perceived. And yes. then they realize it's like an action sort of thing. And the only candidate is one God. That's right. Oh, really? It's one God, and we've got to do something. That's right. That's right. So we have too many gods. There's three gods and faith alone. When it should be faith, charity, and usefulness, and one God. You know, it's, there's like threes in the wrong place and the ones in the wrong place. Give my regards to Julia. Good to see you, Jonathan. Are you on Facebook? I'm not. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I made a video, a short video. Oh, yeah? It's like a sort of uh, influence, and it's just getting a lot, a lot, a lot of attention. Really? Like people can share things on their wall, but I mean, a lot of people will watch a video. Not Great. People will share it, right? But yeah. more than 200 people have shared this, and a lot of them I don't know. So wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, yeah Kristen's on there and Cars on there. So yeah, I I check it out first. The, the problem, chances are somebody they know is posted. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it just posted it yesterday, but it's really good. Oh, That's great. Yeah, man, check it out. Good. Good for you. Thank you.